Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Did you know millennials and adults over 50 face similar challenges in the job market? Coming up, we talk with author Lori Rassis, an employment attorney and author of Over the Hill, but not Over the Cliff. Her book offers guidance to workers 50 years and older on ways to push past ageism in the workplace. And later, HQ2. Amazon recently announced it's looking to open a second headquarters in North America, which means spending billions to construct the new location and the promise of 50,000 new jobs. The news got officials scrambling across the country, including here in Connecticut, to submit proposals. Now, bringing the tech giant to this region will be welcome news to a state and capital city struggling with huge deficits and few options left to plug them. Coming up, could Hartford or maybe Bridgeport really attract Amazon.com? We'll find out what the company's really looking for. And of course, we want to hear from you, too. The number 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. But first, another week, another hurricane. Irma, now a tropical storm, caused many Florida residents to evacuate, whether scrambling further north or out of state before the storm made landfall. As of this morning, the storm's dumping rain on North Florida before it will head into Alabama and Tennessee, much weaker than it was as it moved up Florida's southwest coast. Now, are you a former state resident who moved to Florida only to find yourself back in Connecticut for a few days to ride Irma out? Tell us how you prepared, or are you worried about relatives still in Florida? The number again, 860-275-7266. Now, joining us first is Ryan Hanrahan, meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. His blog is called On Ryan's Radar. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Lucy. So what made this storm, Irma, so baffling as that we were looking at where it would end up? Well, Irma was was quite fascinating in that it was the longest Atlantic hurricane we've ever seen that stayed at its uh, Category 5 intensity for as long as it did. Uh, A lot of times we get a storm that peaks at a Category 5 for 12 or 18 hours and weakens. Irma was able to do it for days, um, and that's what would really cause so much destruction uh, through portions of the Caribbean, the British Virgin Islands, Barbuda, um, and even parts of the U.S. Virgin Islands. And then as the storm moved to the west, there was always a question of how quickly it would turn north into Florida. Would it turn north closer to the Bahamas or the east coast of Florida, or would it turn north a little bit later over the west coast of Florida. And so trying to figure out exactly when that turn was going to happen was sort of the forecast challenge um, over the last few days. And it's called the what, the cone of probability, the cone of uncertainty. Uh, do people read that cone uh, uh, in, a, in a way that uh, makes them feel like they could be safe if they just stay put because they think it just goes up the middle? Well, that's a really good point. So the cone of uncertainty, um, I sort of like to say that it is become a victim of its own success. You see the cone of uncertainty everywhere. It's ubiquitous. You see it on TV. You see it in the newspaper. You see it online. But I'm not sure everyone really understands uh, what the cone of uncertainty means. So the cone of uncertainty is just trying to show you where there is the likelihood the center of the storm will cross. And so for the most part, the center of the storm stayed in that cone of uncertainty, uh, moving along the southwest coast of Florida. The problem is, is sometimes you get these storms, storms that are as large as Hurricane Irma, 
and the threat for hurricane force winds extended way beyond what the cone was showing. So the cone's only really showing you where the center of the storm or the eye is going. It doesn't really show you how far the impacts will, will stray from the center, and that can be a little misleading. Now, when we compare Irma to Harvey, Harvey dumped uh, uh, record amounts of rain. With Irma, was more of the danger, uh, the, the uh, force of the wind, and possibly the surge? Yeah, so that's exactly right. So with Harvey, I mean, Harvey hit a relatively unpopulated area in uh, Texas with its storm surge and its rain. So it was a little east of Corpus, with storm surge and its wind, just east of Corpus Christi. But the heavy rain fell in Houston, and that was the big problem with Harvey. Uh, With Irma, it was sort of all of the above. We had problems with flooding. Right now, Jacksonville's getting a lot of fresh water and storm surge flooding. It's sort of happening in tandem. We had problems with storm surge. It looks like some of the Florida Keys were really, really hit hard with storm surge, talking about 10 feet of inundation on some of the Florida Keys. Um, And then the problems with wind. We saw uh, some roofs ripped off some homes um, around Naples, lots of trees down, millions of people without power. So uh, Irma really had uh, sort of all of the different tropical threats, although I will say Irma did weaken quite a bit by the time it got to Florida. So it was a Category 5 um, as it ha- uh, moved into Cuba, but it spent about 24 hours over Cuba, and that weakened the storm substantially. So by the time it made landfall in Florida, it was a Category 3 storm. Um, and a lot of the pictures we're looking at in Florida this morning are bad, but they could have been a whole lot worse. And do we know yet how badly the Keys were hit? Uh, we know that Key West suffered some damage, but some of the keys just east of there uh, were hit very, very hard. So there's a lot of damage on some of the islands. They're not particularly uh, densely populated, though, um, so it's taking a little bit of time. US-1, um, the, the highway there with all the causeways that gets you from Miami down to uh, Key West is uh, impassable in some spots. So it won't really be until... Uh, people can get on the ground and take a look at some of the damage that will have a full assessment of what happened there. So we've seen two uh, very dangerous hurricanes in this uh, hurricane season. In terms of predicting storms going forward, um, are enough resources being allocated uh, to to study hurricane science, Ryan, considering uh, everyone's focus on climate change and these more powerful storms we may be seeing? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a really good, good question. Um, unfortunately, the United States for a long time, for decades, has really been lagging other parts of the world in our numerical weather predictions, so the computer models we use to forecast the weather. Um, The American computer model um, did quite poorly predicting Irma for most of Irma's uh, lifetime. Uh, The European computer model, you've probably heard us talk about that before blizzards or before hurricanes, before Hurricane Sandy, the European model was what did such a good job. So we have a ways to go, and that's really an investment um, in trying to to catch up with the Europeans in how well they're doing. Um, In terms of the climate connection with Irma and Harvey, um, the the links between climate change and hurricanes are a bit more tenuous than other uh, links between climate change and other types of extreme weather, but they're there. I mean, we have extremely warm waters, uh, warmer than usual, warmer than you would see without uh, humans impacting climate and, and making the world a warmer place. And you also have more moisture in the atmosphere. The warmer the air, the more ability it has to hold water. And that's one of the reasons we saw such problems with Hurricane Harvey in Texas, because we were able to squeeze out so much rain and so much water. But I think the bigger issue in Florida, especially, and even in Texas around Houston, is we have a really big problem with building 
in uh, very vulnerable places. I mean, you look at some of the places in southwest Florida where people have homes surrounded by canals two feet above sea level. You know, with rising sea levels, we are, we are building and we're subsidizing building in extremely vulnerable locations. And that's going to be a really big problem over the coming decades with more hurricanes like Ermin Harvey. Ryan Hanrahan, meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. His blog is called On Ryan's Radar. Ryan, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Lucy. This is where we live. We're talking about Hurricane Irma, now a tropical storm. Uh, Reports say more than half of Florida is without power, and that's the case for our next guest. I want to welcome into the conversation uh, Michael Grunwald, senior writer for Political Magazine and author of The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and The Politics of Paradise. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, you, you probably heard uh, our Connecticut meteorologist here, uh, Ryan Hanrahan, talking about um, some parts of southwest Florida where it doesn't really make sense to live and to build. You just wrote something recently about uh, the idea of, of Florida as paradise, but when you have storms like these come through, um, it really makes people think about uh, why they live there. Uh, tell us a little bit about what brought you to Florida. Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I went down to write a book uh, about the Everglades, um, and uh, and essentially about water in in Florida, and uh, and what what you find when you particularly when you read some of these old accounts is that uh, people assumed that South Florida would never be inhabited because it was too wet. It was disgusting. The uh, U.S. Army soldiers who chased the Seminole Indians around Florida swamps in the 1830s um, really were mystified by why Washington had told them to do this instead of just uh, leaving this uninhabitable wasteland to the Indians and the mosquitoes. Um, It seemed preposterous that anybody would want to live here full time in such a swampy, bug infested, you know, the words they used words like hideous and monstrous and diabolical and godforsaken. Um, They really thought it was terrible. Um, but the only problem was water. (laughs) And, uh, and what people realized is that if you could get rid of the water, um, you could turn it into a, a really nice place. And, uh, and Florida really is a nice place, except when it isn't. So you're a Miami resident? I am. I am. And, and where did you uh, evacuate to? So I'm in Orlando right now. I'm, uh, I'm looking out my mother-in-law's window, and I see branches strewn all over the driveway, which, uh, which happened overnight while I was sleeping. You can tell what a, an ace journalist I am. I had no idea. <laughs> So you uh, mentioned uh, water control. What about uh, the man who invented the air conditioner? Uh, isn't he seen as a, as a state hero in Florida? Well, it's funny. I mean, definitely people talk about air conditioning. People talk about bug spray. People even talk about Social Security as, uh, as the things that drew people to, to Florida. But it was really water control that, uh, that did the trick. And first, the water control was inadequate. Remember, like in the... Uh, in the early 1900s, when when South Florida was still pretty empty, um, you know, compared to the the rest of the country, um, that's when people started uh, starting to try to drain the swamp, uh, to use a, a phrase that we're hearing again these days. And uh, and they would go and they'd show people the land during the winter and say, "Oh, it's beautiful. It's you know, it's never going to flood." And the suckers would buy it, and then the summer rains would come and it, and it would flood again. And that's when Florida real estate became this this national punchline, right? Like land by the gallon. I've got some swamp land in Florida I'd like to sell you. I don't know if you ever saw the Groucho Marx movie, uh, Coconuts, uh, is about the sort of Florida land boom. Um, but people really did buy 
and, in, and then until in 1926, a hurricane wiped out Miami. Um, and so you've had this sort of boom and bust forever in uh, in South Florida over the last the last century. And uh, and you know I'm I think it's very unlikely that it's going to stop because again it may be an uninhabitable paradise, it may be an unsustainable paradise, but it really is nice. And there is a drawback to that water control when you when you see a storm like this in terms of uh, when there is a lot of rain. Where does the water go? Well, exactly. I mean, you, you see it less during a storm like this where actually the engineering helps prepare by sort of blasting some of that water out of the way. But what we've definitely seen over the last century are these incredible environmental um, consequences of basically engineering a swamp so that uh, 8 million people can live around it. And, uh, you know, just last year on the Treasure Coast, uh, north of Miami, you saw the one of America's most beautiful and popular estuaries was suddenly shrouded in this flocculent glop that looked like guacamole and smelled like a sewer. Um, and again, that was essentially water managers blasting water out of Lake Okeechobee um, which is the big sort of water body in the middle of the of the peninsula, surrounded by this kind of flimsy dike, and they had to get the water out of there because they were afraid if it got too high, you'd have another hurricane come and blast it through its dike. I don't know if you've ever read "Their Eyes Are Watching God" by Zora Neale Hurston, but that's really the story of the 1928 hurricane, which killed 2,500 people living in the Everglades. Uh, at this point, there are 100 times more people living in harm's way than there were in 1928. You can only imagine the kind of catastrophe if we had another another hurricane like that. Michael Grunwald, a senior writer for Political Magazine and author of The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise. I want to welcome into our discussion now uh, a voice that our many people who listen to NPR are familiar with, uh, Frank Tavares, who uh, lived in Connecticut for some time. Just in the last year, he moved down to Florida uh, to uh, Coral Springs, uh, South Florida. Frank, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back with you, and it's a pleasure to talk with you today as opposed to yesterday. This was part of the deal of, I think I'm going to trade the ice and snow of New England for the occasional hurricane of Florida. And in, in planning, that seems like such a great idea until you're in the middle of it. Like Michael just said, it's, it's a great place to live, except when it isn't. So how did you prepare, Frank? Because you moved down there uh, late last summer. I, I think you had a fairly uneventful season uh, last year, but, but this time yeah. Irma's headed your way, or you heard Emma was headed your, Irma was headed your way. How did you prepare? Well, first of all, as Ryan was talking about the cone of uncertainty uh, a few minutes ago, when you're looking at that from the outside, it's all theoretical, and it's, oh, that's interesting. I wonder which way it will go. When you're in the middle of it, it's really crucial. And so we uh, have uh, shutters on the house, accordion shutters, so we were able to deploy those towards the end of the week. Thursday is when we buttoned everything up. We, uh, we had our water supplies. We had non-perishable food uh, already. We were preparing for the inevitable power outage. We were lucky and were among the 50% in our area who did not lose power, lost Internet, but that's nowhere near as, as difficult. Um, we uh, found a place in the house, as so many had uh, suggested to us, that was protected inside, had no, ex- uh, uh, no windows to the outside, 
we went to the mattresses. Um, we put mattresses in that particular area. We had our important papers in, uh, in folders, our uh, birth certificates, insurance stuff, everything. And we had go-to bags ready just in case uh, it became inevitable that we needed to get out. Um, and we, that, that was, Lucy, that was the most difficult thing, is trying to make that decision, should we evacuate? We were not in an evacuation area, but knowing how bad the wind could get, should we make a run for it? And we went back and forth trying to make this, this decision, understanding that the longer we waited, the more difficult it would be. And then looking at the reports and listening to the reports of people who, are, who were evacuating from further south Miami and, of course, the Keys, the highways were jammed, fuel was iffy, and we finally decided, you know, rather be here in our house, take the chances, than be caught in the open at the side of the road with no tank in the gas. And Frank, when you, when <laughs> no you opened up your windows, your doors this morning, uh, what's the damage like? Um, a lot of uh, debris. Uh, we lost one uh, old deciduous tree, a rather large tree, but it fell sideways. So uh, if it had changed direction, it would have uh, uh, hit the enclosure that we have around uh, the, uh, the deck. Uh, so we were lucky uh, there. Uh, there is supposed to come through uh, sometime this morning or later today and clear the debris out of the street so we can actually get on the road and leave. Although Many of us are not going to be interested in doing that for a while. I feel really uh, uh, lucky. When we saw that cone moving to the west, God bless the folks on the western part of the, the state as it was moving up towards Tampa, but we realized we would be dealing with Category 1 winds and not the Category uh, 3 and there's a huge difference between those categories, as anybody who's been watching and listening can, can tell you. Uh, so we've got a bit of cleanup to do, um, and uh, it'll be a couple of days before we get back to, and I'm doing air quotes for us, a normal. Um, we live near a golf course, which is ironic since neither my wife nor I are golfers, but I can look out and I see that the sand traps are all water hazards now, but the water didn't come up high enough to where it was a, a threat to us a couple of hundred yards of, uh, away. But I've got to tell you, Lucy, it, um, it gets your attention. It's, uh, it's that kind. And the other thing about being buttoned up in the house when you have the shutters is you can't see outside. You can hear the wind. You can hear the banging. You can hear the shrieking. And you're wondering what the heck is going on out there. But you can't look. <laughs> Well, Frank, well, we're glad to hear that uh, it sounds like uh, not too much damage. We're glad to hear that you and your family and your dog are doing all right. Oh, yes. Yeah, with an adventure for the dog, too. <laughs> Again, Frank Tavares, a, a former much. Connecticut resident who lives in South Florida now. Uh, many know him as the voice of, of NPR. Frank, thanks so much. I wanted just to turn back to Michael Grunwald, a senior writer for Political Magazine, quickly. Again, uh, it sounds like Irma could have been worse, and this storm won't stop people from, from moving to Florida. Well, exactly. I mean, Frank is, uh, as I'm sure Frank knows, he lives in the former Everglades. Um, and, but most most of us don't know that. Um, you know, we uh, you know we get an alligator in our backyards and we call alligator, you know, we call animal control. It doesn't occur to us that we're in the alligator's backyard. Um, we're living in a floodplain, and uh, you know they call them that because it's plain that they flood. <laughs> and uh, and. Look, we do have this collective amnesia. Frank wasn't here when Hurricane Andrew uh, Andrew came through. I wasn't here either. And uh, and most of us 
we don't go through our lives thinking like, you know, oh, well, maybe a disaster will come that will, you know, uproot us and force us to rethink everything. We just live our lives. And I think most people in Florida, um, this is going to be forgotten pretty quickly, just like uh, all the storms that came before it. Michael Gunrall, author of The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and The Politics of Paradise, also senior writer for Political Magazine. Michael, thanks for your time. We're glad to hear you're doing well. Hi, anytime. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we shift to an announcement by Amazon that got Connecticut and many other states pretty excited. Could one of our cities become the future home of HQ2? We'll find out more after the break, and you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A technology giant got cities across America dreaming, dreaming about becoming the home of Amazon.com's second headquarters. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos has said his company is looking to invest $5 billion into this new location and plans to hire and create 50,000 new jobs. Connecticut is just one of many across the country that will submit a proposal to Amazon before the October 19th deadline. Do you think Connecticut has a chance? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, what's the company really looking for in its second headquarters? HQ2. To tell us more, we're joined now by Brian Fung, uh, tech reporter for The Washington Post. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell us about uh, what exactly Amazon.com is looking for in these uh, requests for proposals. Well, uh, it's a number of things. And, uh, you know, all these factors, they say, are not ranked. Um, They're just, you know, kind of key guidelines that uh, they're hoping that cities are going to um, try and follow when they're pitching their proposals. Uh, You know, one of them is that um, cities should be close to an international airport. Um, They should have easy access to public transit. Um, they should have a, uh, you know, a vibrant culture that, uh, you know, employees would be able to live and, and work and have fun in. Um, they're looking for cities that are generally filled with more than a million people. Um, and note when I say cities, uh, we're really talking metropolitan areas here. So, um, you know, one area that has been talked about is um, uh, the uh, Northeast Corridor here, the New York City, uh, Baltimore, Washington, Washington D.C. Um, but then you also have your, you know, more typical areas such as San Francisco, um, Austin, Dallas, New Orleans, and the like. I understand Washington Post narrowed it down to 39 places. Is Connecticut on the list, Brian? Uh, Connecticut is not on the list, unfortunately. But uh, you know, there uh, I believe there have been a number of Connecticut officials who've uh, you know tweeted that um, you know Amazon should uh, try and uh, make its new headquarters there anyway. I wanted to bring into the discussion uh, Stephen Singer, business reporter for the Hartford Current. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us about uh, Connecticut's chances. Uh, we've already heard the Washington Post says, well, they're not, according to how they looked at criteria, that Connecticut doesn't make the list. But uh, what, what do we have going for us? Um, well, Connecticut um, is going to make a pitch for it. And there's two regions that um, uh, will, be, will be candidates. One is the uh, Fairfield-New Haven uh, corridor, which includes Yale University and several other universities. And um, Connecticut officials say they've got a lot of really great livable communities along the shoreline. The other one is the Hartford region. Uh, Mayor Bronin last week said this is a great opportunity for the region to think of itself as a region and not just a city. Um, One of the things that Brian mentioned about airports is telling because when GE left Connecticut um, in uh, 
2016 and went to Boston. One of the reasons was the uh, proximity to Logan Airport. So that doesn't bode well if that's a, if that's a big item for Amazon. Uh, we have um, Bradley Airport, but that's regional. That's not a you know first rank um, um, international airport. Now, Brian, and what what are the chances for secondary markets? Uh, you know, you mentioned San Francisco, but that's an area that's really crowded with uh, with competitors. And how are they going to find the fifty thousand uh, uh, people they want to hire? That talent. That's right. And so Amazon is basically trying to walk a very fine line here, um, trying to find a city that's not too exposed, uh, you know, or 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 overexposed. Um, you could say San Francisco, New York. Um, you know, these types of places are cities that uh, have a very high cost of living. Um, people are, you know, cramming in there and uh, really having trouble finding housing. Um, you know, a lot of tech companies are worried that maybe they may not be able to hire enough people, uh, which could be a concern given that Amazon wants to hire as many as 50,000 people um, to work in its new headquarters. This, uh, this could mean that um, they may look towards smaller cities, um, perhaps like Nashville uh, or Orlando, um, you know, as a way to try and drum up some uh, more interest, get people to m- perhaps move to places where, uh, you know, th- the cost of living isn't quite so high. Now, do you think that Connecticut could uh, be in the running for Amazon.com's HQ2? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to go back to, to Steve Singer with uh, the Hartford Current. Uh, you mentioned the Fairfield, New Haven uh, area being part of the r- proposal that Connecticut will submit or is in the running. Why not bridgeport Stanford? Isn't Stanford pretty a uh, pretty happening place, and uh, Bridgeport may have the, the room for something like this, the, the, the space for a headquarters this Size? That would be part of the uh, that corridor. Uh, Bridgeport is in Fairfield County, um, and uh, I saw one. Uh, I think it was um, Market Watch um, had a list uh, of of possible uh, 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 areas that could uh, be seriously, uh, seriously, uh, seriously considered. And Bridgeport was one of them. Uh, one of the other points with the fifty thousand employees that would make Amazon, if it, if it chose Connecticut, it would make it the Probably the biggest private employer. The uh, the whole uh, uh, employment level in Connecticut is about 1.7 million, which would make 50,000 almost three percent in one shot, which is um, uh, raises questions about how you could absorb 50,000 employees in a labor force of uh, a little shy of 1.7 million. We're getting a tweet from a listener, Mark, uh, who writes, in terms of scale, Connecticut has what it takes, but city cores must be made more walkable, transit-rich, which requires investment. Uh, that could be a place where uh, we'd be hurting, Steve. Uh, state officials uh, have been you know, talking about the uh, state of the cities for years now. Um, Hartford is making some changes. They have a new minor league stadium. They uh, brought the University of Connecticut downtown. Um, these are all areas they point to, um, but it's going to be many, many years before Hartford or uh, Bridgeport and other cities um, get to the level um, that might be attractive to an employer like Amazon. This is where we live today. We're talking about the the recent announcement from Amazon.com that it's looking for proposals to build its second headquarters in in North America. Uh, Connecticut is joining a a list of many regions around the country that are hoping for this, uh, HQ2. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We're getting another tweet from Eduardo who writes, Poor Connecticut, between the brains of Boston and the money and glitz of New York, has better parking, though. It almost sounds like we're selling ourselves short. There's a lot of talent here, right, Steve? 
Um, it is kind of a tricky area when you're marketing yourself as being near two other really great places. Um, and uh, Connecticut does that a lot because of its proximity to these two very large cities, one of the biggest in the country, and then and then and then Boston in addition. Um, it does open itself. It opens itself up to uh, questions about uh, um, if you're so great, why are you marketing yourself as being uh, close to two other cities? I want to go back to Brian Fung, a tech reporter for the Washington Post. Uh, WAPO uh, narrowed it down to 39 places, 39 regions around the country that uh, could be in the running for the second headquarters. Uh, with the acquisition of Whole Foods, uh, Brian, uh, could that maybe play a part in where Amazon.com puts its headquarters? Is it closer to Texas? Well, that's a great question, and a lot of folks, uh, you know, think that um, it, given that Amazon's existing headquarters is on the West Coast, that it might make sense for Amazon to shift its operations, its second headquarters, to the East Coast. Um, one good advantage, uh, you know, it gets by doing so is that it then gets to cover pretty much the entire United States uh, in terms of time zones. Um, you, you know, you would have people waking up in the uh, East Coast, working East Coast hours, um, you know, not being, um, not lagging behind uh, the, the East Coast when uh, the West Coast wakes up, that sort of thing, uh, you know, which is going to be increasingly important as Amazon expands its operations, uh, you know, both in groceries, but also in other sectors uh, and in the United States and abroad as well. And give us an idea when we hear this uh, promise of 50,000 new jobs, what kinds of jobs are we talking about, Brian? Well, they're mostly higher-end jobs, uh, managerial jobs, engineering jobs. Um, you know, th this is, to be clear, it's not a manufacturing plant, um, which raises some interesting questions as far as, you know, how someone like uh, President Trump will receive, um, you know, the, the announcement of uh, a potential HQ uh, somewhere in the 50 states. Uh, you know, it is important to uh, point out here, as an aside, um, you know, the, the proposal from Amazon or request for proposals, I should say, uh, covers not just the United States, but also the rest of North America, including Canada and Mexico. So Montreal, uh, Ottawa, Toronto, and Mexico City all made our list. Um, and so there's a question here as to, you know, what the political ramifications are for Amazon if it decides to host its uh, HQ2 somewhere else. That's a good point. And Steve Singer from the Hartford Current, business reporter for The Current. Uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, footprint Amazon has in Connecticut in terms of warehouses. Um, it has warehouses in Wallingford and in uh, Windsor, and it's building a third in North Haven. Um, and uh, it's got its presence also, obviously, in uh, several Whole Foods stores. But those are the three warehouses in, in Connecticut. And, uh, Brian, uh, so proposals will be uh, accepted until October 19th. How soon could Amazon.com make a decision? That's a great question. I mean, the tech industry moves incredibly fast uh, these days, so I wouldn't be surprised to see, uh, you know, Amazon moving quickly on this. Um, that said, this is a very big decision. There aren't very many companies uh, in the United States or around the world who have two uh, headquarters in the same country. Um, uh, so this is really a big deal, and, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how Amazon decides to play this. Brian Fung, tech reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you, Brian, for your time. Thanks for having me. Also, Stephen Singer, business reporter for The Hartford Current. Steve, thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A company like Amazon can attract young workers, especially in the tech sector. But what about older Americans, especially the long-term unemployed who are over 50? We'll find out what opportunities are available for them, and we'll hear from an author on the best ways older residents can market themselves in an ever-changing job market. Now, you can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Join me tomorrow night at 6 at the Warner Theater in Torrington for Making Her Story. It's a new Where We Live series highlighting the stories of prominent Connecticut women. We'll hear tomorrow from Hartford Symphony Orchestra music director Carolyn Kwan, and we'll take audience questions, too. Please join us. More details at our website, WMPR.org. Now, the national unemployment rate is at 4.4 percent, nearly its lowest rate in 16 years. How are older workers or people who fit this uh, long-term unemployed category faring? What job opportunities are out there for them, too? According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, more Americans over 55 are working now than ever before. But that doesn't mean workers 50-plus and over don't face challenges in finding and retaining jobs. Are you one of them? Tell us your experience. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the conversation Lori Rassis, author of Over the Hill But Not the Cliff, Five Strategies for 50-Plus Job Seekers to Push Past Ageism and Find a Job in the Loyalty-Free Workplace. Lori, welcome to Where We Live. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the challenges that face older workers and what they may have in common with millennials. Um, So I think when we're talking about older workers, the idea that people sort of need to think about is it's not really the older workers' age that we have to contend with, but it's really sort of the stereotypes of what the age represents. Um, And so the issue really is is that when somebody is 50, 60, or 70, and an employer sort of is looking at them as for a potential job, they sort of have these preconceived notions about them more so than other candidates. And so that's a challenge because a lot of times those workers aren't even considered because of these stereotypes. Tell us about the stereotypes that uh, someone has when they're interviewing someone in that category. Yeah, so um, there's sort of a couple buckets that they fall into. Um, So one is sort of if you close your eyes for a minute, you sort of think of someone who's older, let's just say 80, for example. Um, The question is, what what do you think of when you see this person? And, you know, you think they're tired and they want to be lying on a beach and they don't want to learn anymore. And, you know, they're certainly not going to be sitting in front, you know, they don't have the technology in front of them. All these sort of things come into um, the play. Um, So one thing is that they're tired. One thing is that they don't have energy to really sort of be a go-getter. There's also this idea that as you're 55 or maybe approaching 60, um, you're more interested in retirement than your career. Um, There's an idea that you sort of feel as if you've learned enough and you really, you know it all and you don't really have more to learn. Um, And of course, technology is a big issue that older candidates face, which is you're not interested in technology, you don't have the skills that are current. um, And so that's going to be sort of a negative against you. Those are sort of the stereotypes. Now, you're an employment attorney, Mm -hmm. and we know age discrimination is illegal. So Mm -hmm. how do people get away with it? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that, yes, it's true. Age discrimination is illegal. But we also know that so is sexism and so is racism and so are a lot of other things. Um, And so the point is is that most people today really are aware that it's um, illegal to consider age. And what they do is it sort of goes underground. First of all, some people do it innocently. They may not know that they have these unconscious uh, biases. But really what happens is, is rather than sort of saying, I mean, it's very rare that I have a client that, you know, is told, you're too old. I mean, no one's really going to say that because they know generally that that's not permissible. Um, and so there's sort of other sort of things that sort of 
you know, bring age into it. For example, I hear a lot, you know, you're too experienced or you earn too much money or, you know, why do you want this job? You know, aren't you ready to retire? It sort of comes up um, sort of, you know, with characteristics. I mean, the biggest thing I hear is people say they're too experienced or they earn too much money, which is sort of could be viewed as an idea basically saying you're too old, right? Because nobody's telling a 30-year-old you make too much money or you have too much experience. So it sort of comes up indirectly, and it's a little more hidden because people are aware that it's not permissible. Now, I mentioned that uh, older workers uh, may have more in common than millennials in terms mm-hmm. of trying to find a job. Talk, talk us through what millennials have experienced trying to get that job. Yeah, so I think it actually is sort of interesting um, that there is a lot of commonality between millennials and older workers, even though they don't see it. And um, by that I mean I talk to a lot of millennials, and millennials complain, you know, people think I'm young, people think I can't do this work, there's so many stereotypes, people think I'm lazy. But then in the same sentence, the millennials will say, well, that person's too old. So it's sort of interesting that, you know, millennials complain that they don't want to be stereotyped, and older candidates say that they don't want to be stereotyped, and they actually stereotype each other. Um, And so in ideal world, I mean, from the employer's perspective, and I do a lot of coaching with employers, um, the idea is to take age out of the conversation. Because, you know, if you're looking for something and, you know, you need the best talent and you want to recruit the top talent, why do you care if they're 22 or if they're 50 or if they're 60? I mean, you should really focus on those job characteristics and sort of get rid of those stereotypes. This is where we live. On the phone with us, Lori Ratsis, author of Over the Hill But Not the Cliff, Five five Strategies for 50-Plus Job Seekers to Push Past Ageism and Find a Job in a Loyalty-Free Workplace. Uh, Maybe that is something that refers to you. And if you want to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Tell us how you're navigating the job market um, if you fit this uh, category. Now, Lori, I wanted to mention, you know, earlier in the segment, I talked about the unemployment rate being at its lowest levels. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since the recession, we've heard about this category, a long-term unemployed, someone who may have lost their job, and it's just taking them a long time to try to find work. Mm -hmm. How how difficult is it for them to get that uh, foot in the door because they're looking – is an employer looking at someone's resume and saying, well, you've been out of work for a number of years. Why should I be hiring them? Um, Yeah, so that's a good point. And I think um, for older candidates, it's just sort of another obstacle to overcome. Um, And so, yes, if you're older, that's an obstacle. And if you've been unemployed, regardless of your age, it's another obstacle to overcome. Um, So I think it's a concern. I think the same thing that you need to do if you're, um, you know, not employed, first of all, I would say, if you're not working, you want to stay engaged, you want to get a part-time job, you want to, you know, make yourself visible so that you have somebody to say. I mean, if somebody says, what have you been doing for the past eight months, you don't want to say nothing, right? You want to show, because again, it's feeding into the stereotype type, particularly if you're older, because if it's been eight months and you haven't had a job, the perception is you don't have the skills, you have an abandoned interest in learning, you know, why aren't you out there doing things? It sort of feeds into the age stereotype, so it sort of compounds the issue. And the other thing that, um, you know, you might find interesting is that a lot of um, states are starting to see long-term unemployment as an issue that's unrelated to sort of whether or not you can do the job and are starting to outlaw unemployment, uh, meaning it's going to be, you know, in some states it's already... Um, impermissible to consider unemployment. So, I mean, I'm, I practice law um, in New York City, and in New York City, unemployment actually is what's called a protected class, meaning you're not permitted to say, if you're unemployed, need not apply, and you're not permitted to consider that. So a lot of, employ- um, a lot of states are sort of seeing this um, as an issue, particularly for older candidates. Um, and so I think that the trend is sort of, you know, there are sort of some things that are being done to counter that. Um, the other thing I think is that unemployment used to be sort of a very big stigma, um, but because of the economy, there are actually a lot of fantastic candidates that are you know no longer working or have been laid off. Um, I know at the beginning of my career, the idea was 
if you were laid off, well, you were probably terrible. You probably weren't a good employee because, you know, the company would find something for you or they would keep you. But that doesn't happen anymore. Um, you know, companies have to do less with more, and I mean, more with less. And there really are great candidates that are laid off. So I think the good news is there's less of a stigma that if you were laid off, it's not so much, oh, you're a terrible employee just because, you know, the company had to downsize. And so there's some great candidates um, in this sort of you know, section. And for employers, I would say this is actually a market to tap into because, you know, for employers, you can get some great candidates by actually tapping into this market of older employees who may have been laid off, um, but really are dedicated employees and really do want to work and have a lot to contribute. Now, Lori, walk us through if I'm someone who is over 50 mm-hmm. and I'm looking uh, to, to get a job, how should I market myself on a resume? And then once I get that interview, um, how should I um, do the interview with someone where they're not going to see my age? Okay, so a couple things. So first of all, you want to sort of think about all the stereotypes, and you want to make sure your resume sort of counters them. So, for example, um, the idea is, you know, that you don't have an interest in learning, and the idea is that you don't have technology skills. So on your resume, you want to sort of showcase those skills. So you want to put those skills, technology skills, front and center. If you have a Twitter account, you want to get, you know, you want to sort of put your Twitter handle on your resume. Um, You want to make sure you're active on social media. You want to go on LinkedIn. You want to have a profile. You want to connect. You want to post. You really want to have a digital presence so that if somebody's not sure about your technology skills, they could do a quick search and they see that you're an active person in technology. So you want to highlight those. That's the biggest um, sort of first thing you want to do is make sure technology is front and center. Um, The second thing is, you know, there's this idea of an abandoned interest in learning. So you really want to show that you're current. So you want to, um, if you haven't attended conferences, you want to start to attend conferences, and you want to highlight anything you've done recently. Um, You don't want to say, you know, 20 years ago I was, you know, a team leader. You want everything that happened maybe 20 years before. You want to take that off your resume, and you want to show current examples of how you sort of have this interest um, in learning and being, you know, committed and being at the forefront of those types of things. you can write articles, you can give interviews, you can do speeches, you want to do all of those things, and you want to highlight those so somebody will see you as an active participant. Um, the other thing is, I know you have a lot of experience, and older candidates feel like they have lots and lots of experience. Um, you want to sort of narrow it down. I always say avoid um, what I call a career obituary. Um, you know, something that you did 40 years ago, it may have been great, but try to find examples that you've done in the recent past, um, because hopefully if you've done something great a long time ago, you've continued to do it, so you don't want to sort of highlight things uh, way back when, because you want to show you have current examples. You mentioned emphasizing technologies such as LinkedIn. You know, mm-hmm. some people might be like, oh, I don't even know how to use that. But there are programs, there are libraries out there that have LinkedIn classes. There are places people can go uh, to get that kind of advice on, on how to, uh, to, to get up to speed on technology that may not be, have been around 10 years ago. Where are some other places, resources people can use, Lori? Um, so I do think that's true. If you do a quick Google search, you, there's always going to be free webinars that you can do, free um, resources to use. So definitely online, you do a quick Google search, a lot of that will come up. Um, you also can go to your local library. Um, it, you know, if you have, assuming you have a college degree or you went to college, you go to alumni associations. Um, you can go to the bar association. You can go to career fairs. There's lots of resources available. And there's really no reason not to have what's a LinkedIn profile. Um, it's the idea a lot of recruiters are looking directly on LinkedIn. And if you have a LinkedIn profile, it's sort of the foundation. And if you don't have a LinkedIn profile, I think that's the first red flag that someone's going to say, well, this person doesn't have the basics, and you're sort of going to be passed over. 
Give I us think the, it's critical. Give us the dynamic. Uh, so for someone who uh, may be over 40, over 50, mm-hmm. and they finally uh, got that job they're looking for, and then they've got the younger boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any advice in terms of the yeah. dynamic there? Uh, So I think that's sort of an issue that comes up, because obviously the older you are, the more likely that's going to happen. And I would say the idea is, just like you don't want to be judged by your age, I would say don't judge your younger boss by their age. And I think, um, you you know, it it shouldn't really matter. Just like you don't want your boss to come in and say, oh, this person's 55, and sort of go through all the stereotypes, you don't want to do the same thing. And I can say I'm actually guilty of the same thing, because I tell people this all the time. And I recently did a project um, and I, uh, my boss and I um, were 15 years apart, so I started on the first day of the project, and my boss walked in, and I was 15 years older than him, and we were sort of discussing it for a while, and I realized I was sort of playing into the stereotype, um, and it ended up, I mean, he has been, you know, one of the best bosses I've ever had, and so the idea is just try to take age out of the conversation, because I'd much rather have a fantastic boss that's 20 years younger than a boss that's three years older that maybe doesn't treat me right, and so I think... Um, you just sort of have to put that aside. You're there to do the work. You want the top talent. You want the best boss you can have. And I think you just, again, try to take age out of the conversation. And if you don't address it and they don't address it, you know, it seems like that's the best way to sort of move forward. Now, you, again, uh, you titled your book uh, Over the Hill But Not the Cliff, Five mm-hmm. Strategy f- Strategies for 50-plus Job Seekers. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why choose that title? Could some of what you're talking about apply to people 40 and o- over? Uh, yeah, so a couple of things. So um, it's funny that you say that because initially the book was did refer to people that were 40 plus. And really for marketing purposes, I was actually advised to change it to 50 plus because they say 40 people don't really consider themselves um, to be you know old. And so it's funny that you say that because it really is applicable to everybody, right? I mean, nobody wants to be told. You know, if, if you're, if you're, even if you're 30 or if you're you know, 20, whatever your age is, if you have these sort of um, characteristics that you're tired and you're low energy and you don't want to learn a lot and you're not going to be coachable, that's going to be an issue for you. So really these, these are the sort of ways um, that can be used from any job seekers and a lot of the advice is for anyone across the board. Um, the general idea with any job search, regardless of your age or whatever challenge you're facing, um, is really that employers are looking for what I call it, which is the Cinderella fit. Right. The employer basically says, this is what I want, this is exactly what I want. And so if you're older and you have too many years of experience, or if you're younger and you don't have enough experience, you're both unqualified, right? You just have to sort of figure out what exactly does the employer want, and you have to make it clear you're exactly that. Not more, not less. You have to be just right. And that's sort of what the book is geared towards doing. That if somebody says, I want someone who's going to be with me for 10 years and has technology, um, technological skills, you've got to show that you have that, regardless of your age, regardless of who you are, you want to sort of figure out what the employer wants and then show you've got exactly what they need. Because there's a lot of competition for all jobs. Now, Lori, we're getting a tweet from a listener uh, who writes, I don't agree with the social media aspect. I can't stand Facebook, and rarely do I go on LinkedIn. What if people can't afford Wi-Fi? What then? Um, so I think, unfortunately, it's something that is going to have to be sort of somehow part of your process. And it does, I mean, it's very easy now sort of to sort of overcome those things. Um, you could usually get Wi-Fi. You can go to the library. There's a lot of hotspots you can get from a local coffee shop. Um, if you don't know how, if you don't have technological skills, um, you could hire someone to help you. If you can't hire someone, I mean, I have a lot of clients um, who have their grandparents, you know, their grandchildren who set up their accounts. I mean, there are a lot of resources you can use, um, and it really is important. I mean, I don't necessarily particularly like social media either. I mean, I'm right there with a lot of people out there, 
but it does send a signal right off the bat if you're not out there. So it's w sort of one of those things where, just like if you don't like to use a computer, I mean, you sort of have to sort of build those skills, but there are ways to do it in sort of a cost-effective way. So I would say go to the library, find a friend, find a child of a friend, um, and sort of help them establish your presence. I want to squeeze in a quick call from a listener. Uh, Warren's calling from Danbury. Warren, we have a couple minutes. Go ahead. Hi, uh, I'm 56, actually on disability right now, former IT uh, technical management professional. And mm -hmm. what the young woman is saying is, uh, you know, the same stuff I heard about 20 years ago when I got laid off in my late 30s when the Internet bubble tanked. And I'm highly technically trained, and it's the same stuff. Everything she said is kind of textbook. So the real world is she got to look at the bigger picture that you're not talking about, which is, you know, a criminally corrupt government and power structures that are single point of failure at the top of the power pyramid. Everything should be done by committee. There should be no people in positions of single authority. I mean, there's so many problems at the higher strategic level you're not addressing, and then tactically, you can solve some of the age discrimination issues with quotas. And that's probably the easiest way they could implement it to get some fairness about age discrimination. Because she is right that, I mean, you get so highly discriminated over, like, it's just people that are inexperienced and they really don't know what they're doing being put in positions of HR, you know, hiring. Okay, I'll have Lori Rassis sure. respond. Thank you, Lauren. Sure, yeah, thank you for the comment. And I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, I'm, let's just say I agree with every single thing you say. I mean, let's say I agree that there's corruption and the people at the top are uneducated and let's say I 100% agree with everything you say. I always say to people, that's fine, and that may be the truth, but if you're looking for a job, you can't really take on the criminal, you can't really take on, you know, the criminal corruption at the top. You sort of have to say, okay, this is the environment we're in, we have the situation, there's corruption at the top, but what are we going to do? I mean, we're not going to change it when, you know, you're looking for a job and you have bills to pay. So what I try to do is sort of say, okay, ageism exists, it's there, it's wrong, it's illegal, we should eliminate it. That's fine, that may be a long-term goal for you to sort of get rid of it, but, but this is the circumstance we're in. So I say, you know, do what you have, get around the obstacles, get the job, and then change it from the inside, right? Get in and do whatever you have to do to get that job. And then maybe once you're there, and you know, let's say, um, this comes up a lot where people will say, well, they said something offensive about my age in the hiring process, what should I do? I say, it depends if you want the job. Ignore it, move on, and get around it, and get the job, if that's your goal. And then once you're there, maybe change it from the inside. And we'll um, have to leave it there, uh, Lori. But okay. thank you so much uh, for a really interesting segment. Lori Rass is author of Over the Hill But Not the Cliff. And we'll send out uh, information on our Twitter about the book. Lori, thanks again for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, the Today Show, produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you have, don't have plans tomorrow night, consider joining us for Making Her Story at the Warner Theatre in Torrington. Information at WMPR.org.